Let me invite you to open your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 4. We'll look at the entire chapter, verses 1 through 16. Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verses 1 through 16. Allow me to share this. Then I looked again at all the acts of oppression which were being done under the sun, and behold, I saw the tears of the oppressed, and that they had no one to comfort them. And on the side of the oppressors was power, but they had no one to comfort them. So I congratulated the dead who, had already, who were already dead more than the uh, living who are still living. But better off than both of these is the one who has never existed, who has never seen the evil activity that is done under the sun. I have seen that every labor and every skill which is done in the result of rivalry between man, uh, man and his neighbor, this too is vanity and striving after wind. The fool folds his hands and consumes his own flesh. One hand full of rest is better than two fists full of labor and striving after wind. Then I looked again at vanity under the sun. There was a certain man without a dependent, having neither a son nor a brother. Yet there was no end to all his labor. Indeed, his eyes were not satisfied with riches, and he never asked, and for and for whom am I laboring and de depriving myself of pleasure? This too is vanity, and it is a grievous task. Two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. For if either of them falls, the one will lift up the, his companion. But woe to the one who falls when there is no one uh, to lift him up. Furthermore, if two lie down, together they keep warm. But how can one be warm alone? And if one can overpower him who is alone, two can resist him. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. A poor yet wise lad is better than an old and foolish king who no longer knows how to receive instruction. For he has come out of a prison to become king, even though he was poor, born, born poor in his kingdom. I have seen all the living under the sun thrown to the side of the second lad who replaced him. There is no end to all the people, to all who were before them, and even to those who will come later, will not be happy with him. For this too is vanity and striving after wind. What happens when man is left to his own devices and lives by his own desires living under the sun? If you go back to chapter 3, the first part especially, uh, Solomon kind of had a focus on living under heaven, living under the means and obedience to God, and we saw this glimpse of, of, of hope, but now he's reverted back to uh, life under the sun and basically lived by man's own, own beings, and all he sees is misery, vanity, striving after wind, uh, a grievous task, Futility. And so that's what he sees. So in this passage, we're going to look at uh, three different things uh, how people are oppressed, and then a brief, hopeful uh, section dealing with the benefits of companionship, and then another comparison between the foolish and the wise, and the powerful and the poor. And so notice that Solomon uses a couple of different phrases throughout this. He said, I looked again, and I have seen. So this really says that Solomon was doing a serious examination of mankind in his kingdom. He was looking at all the results of the ways that man lives under the sun. 
And notice that's really his focus is how people live under the sun. So we look at being oppressed by the powerful in verses 1 through 3. Uh, basically what we see is that throughout history, the haves have always uh, oppressed the have-nots. You know, they, they simply do it because they can do it. They had the clout. Usually they had political clout. Usually they have the means and ways to, to do whatever they want to because they can buy, you know, their favorite, you know, favors and everything like that. So they had the position of power and leadership, and they usually had the wealth to do whatever it is that they desire. They see the poor as simply tools to meet their own needs and desires. The poor are really more uh, instruments than they are human. Uh, they use them as either slaves or they give them very low wages to do the tasks that they don't want to do themselves. And if they see a poor person that has something that they want, they may have inherited a tract of land or they have some kind of possession that they want, they'll either take it, knowing that the courts will rule in their favor if, if the uh, poor can even afford to take them to court, or they will sue them and the poor, again, you know, will not be able to stand against them and their, their attorneys and things of that nature. So the poor really have no, no one to stand up for them. Their only comfort is knowing that others have been mistreated and abused and oppressed just like them, so they know that others understand. But Solomon also looks at those who are the oppressors. Notice what he says. Let me just read the last part of verse 1. And behold, I saw the tears of the oppressed, and they that had no one to comfort them, and on the side of their oppressors was power, but they had no one to comfort them. So they were in misery as well. Why were the oppressors in misery? Because they never were satisfied. No matter what they did, no matter how much clout they had, no matter how much power or wealth they had, they were never satisfied. And so they were always wanting more and more. And so they never felt at peace. They never found comfort in who they were. They are oppressed by the results of their own oppressive nature. That sounds weird, doesn't it? that your own oppressive nature of, of oppressing others is causing you to feel oppressed. So Solomon is taking this very pessimistic view, and here's what he does. He says, you know, I kind of praise the person who's already dead, because they're not going through this anymore. A dead person can't get oppressed. So you have gone through the oppression, now you have found peace because you no longer are dealing with oppression. So he's basically saying it's better to be dead than alive because you don't have to face this anymore. He says, actually, it would be even better if you never existed, because you would have never even gone through oppression in the first place. And that, that's not a good way to look at life, is it? So he looks at the oppressed and the oppressors, and he sees that no one's really finding any comfort in anything. And then verses 4 through 6, we see uh, being oppressed by either ambition or by laziness. So Solomon now looks at the area of life of making a living. And we see that uh, there's one who says, let's just pick up verse 4. And I have seen that every labor and every skill which is done is the result of rivalry between a man and his neighbor. In other words, I want to outdo my neighbor. I want to do better than him. I want to have a shinier, newer car. I want to have a bigger, better house. I want to have... Uh, more luxuries than the person next to me. So there's this competition, there's this rivalry. And so there's always this constant battle to gain more and more. And uh, 
So you, you end up with this rivalry, this enviousness, uh, and this competitiveness, and it never ends. And so if one neighbor gets a little bit better, then the other neighbor will do something to try to sabotage their reputation or their business or whatever it is. And so this rivalry, this envying, this jealousy, uh, it's just another picture of vanity, chasing after the, after the wind, looking at a way to try to find a way up to be better than other people. So working hard and never finding contentment is one thing. Uh, being in competition with others to try to always be better than someone else is another thing. But then in that same uh, passage, he, he deals with the foolish, uh, lazy person. Look at uh, verse 5. And the fool folds his hands and consumes his own flesh. Now, why does he call him a fool? Mainly because he's, he's not wise enough to get up and get off his, his rear end and work for a living. He basically just folds his hands and says, I'll just sit here and I'll hope that somebody comes along and gives me some crumbs or takes care of my needs. In other words, he wants to be dependent. He doesn't care what other people think. He's a fool because he just folds his hands and he is, does nothing to be productive. And the scripture here tells us that, that he is consuming his own flesh. Now, in those days, if you did not work, you did not eat. There were you know, people who were uh, beggars, but they were beggars because they were lame, they were blind, they had physical maladies that they could not work. And so they sat at the uh, city gates, they sat next to the temple, and the people knew that this was a ministry unto God to make sure that these who could not provide for themselves were fed. And so they would give them alms, they would give them food and things of this nature. But what we see here is somebody that could work but chooses not to. He's starving and wearing away simply because he's too lazy to work. And unfortunately, we see that a lot in our world today. But the unfortunate thing is our government really has stepped in. At one time, the churches ministered to those who were in need. But the church was very good at knowing was there a true need here or were they just lazy and would not work. If they were lazy and would not work, typically the church would not help but they would encourage them and help them to try to see the need to, to get up and work. Uh, but our government's basically you know, stepped in and made it really easy to be lazy and not work. I, I read this, I know it's a little dated, but here's a little bit of irony. The food stamp program, a part of the D Department of Agriculture, is pleased to be distributing the greatest amount of food stamps ever. Meanwhile, the Park Service, which is also a part of the Department of Agriculture, asks us, please do not feed the animals because they will grow dependent and not learn how to take care of themselves. Think about that. What are we doing when we give handouts to people who could earn a living? We are doing what, we, what they say, do not do to the animals. Do not feed the animals for they will grow dependent and not learn how to take care of themselves. And so we look at this laziness and Solomon basically says, this is a man living under the sun by his own desires, and he is saying that too is vanity. That too is, is living or striving after the wind. Then he says, let's find a middle ground that's better. And he says that, uh, let me find it. Verse 8. No, I'm sorry. Pick up verse 6. 
One hand full of rest is better than two fists full of labor and striving after the wind. So the, the first man that we talked about, or the first type of person, was always striving for more and more, which means they're grabbing life with both hands, they're trying their best with both hands to, to grab onto more and more, while the lazy person folded his hands and did nothing, rested. And so Solomon's saying, let one hand rest, and the other hand do the work, and you'll find a better balance in life. Then verses 7 and 8 deal with the press of the greedy. The press by greed. There's a certain man without a dependent, having neither a son nor a brother, yet there was no end to his labor. Indeed, his eyes were not satisfied with riches, and he was never asked, and he never asked, and for whom am I laboring and depriving myself of pleasure? This, too, is vanity, and it is a grievous work. And so we look and we see a man. All he wants is more. He's not even in competition with his neighbor. He's in competition with himself. I am never satisfied with what I have. And so he works night and day to find more ways to earn more and more money, to add another number or another digit to his growing bank account. And, but he doesn't have any dependents. He doesn't have any sons or daughters, doesn't have a brother, doesn't have any relatives to leave his wealth behind. And yet he's working so hard, so constant, that he never takes time to enjoy what he has. So all he does is work so that he can have more for nothing. He never enjoys what he has in the first place. So he will work his entire life gaining more and more wealth, but he's never spent a day enjoying it, other than saying, look at what I have. That's his only enjoyment, is, is looking at a growing bank account week by week, month by month. But he has nothing. And so Solomon is saying, that's just vanity. There, there's nothing to that. Why do this if you're not going to find enjoyment? And why do it if you're not doing it for someone else? And he says it's even a grievous task. He probably can't sleep at night, think about how can I make more money? What can I do tomorrow? And so he is oppressed by his own greed. Then we look at verses uh, 9 through 12. And if there's any ray of hope in what we're reading here today, it's found in these verses. Two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. For if either of them falls, the one will lift up his companion. But woe to the one who falls when, uh, when there is no other to lift him up. Furthermore, if two lie down, together they keep warm. But how can one be warm alone? And if one can be overpowered, uh, if one can overpower him who is alone, two can resist him. A cord of three strands is not quickly torn apart. So here's the benefit of companionship. Solomon is focused so much on the oppression that he starts to notice something. Here's why I think he's noticing. There's a group of people that seem to be making it through life without all the depression, without feeling so bad about themselves. And he starts to examine it. He finds out these are people who are not so self-centered that it's all about them. What they have done is they have found companionship in life. For the worker, he has found somebody he trusts to be his partner. And basically, if you look at just about any type of job, it's easier to do when two people than one. Uh, 
I'm kind of a handyman, but sometimes you need two hands. If you're trying to put a long board up, you need somebody on that end while you nail this end. And so two people are often much more valuable than one. And the accountability and really the camaraderie and the encouragement that you get by having a partner is really invaluable. Uh, when somebody's expecting you to be on the job with them at 8 o'clock or whatever time it might be, you know you've got to get up because somebody's counting on you to be there to help. Where if it's just you working, well, I'll just get there when I want to. And so the accountability is there. Uh, the desire to, to help each other and to minister to each other and encourage each other. And what does happen if somebody falls? What happens if they cannot get up? And there's nobody there. Well, you lay in a ditch until somebody can come and help you. Uh, we, we've had several people in our church. Mildred Reed uh, had a fall in her room you know, a couple of years ago. And there's nobody there to get her up. She laid there on the floor for hours and hours. So there is always uh, benefits when there are two or more. And so in work, he basically says that the return on their work is greater than if it's just one person or two people working individually uh, by themselves. And then he gives an, uh, another illustration. Uh, basically in verse 11, I think it's a little bit different. If two lie down together, they keep warm, but how can one uh, be warm alone? I think this is the companionship of marriage. I think husband and wife sharing a bed together there is warmth there. Now, today, you know, we have thermostats that turn on the heat if it's chilly, and we can sleep with whatever temperature we can either afford or we want. So, but can you imagine living back in Solomon's day? There's no air conditioning. There's no heating. Uh, typically in Israel and places like that, the daytime would be pretty warm, but at night when the sun came down and the wind started blowing, it could get rather chilly. That's why they, they would carry a cloak with them. Uh, they wouldn't always wear it, but they would always have it close by so that they could wrap up. The cloak was either used for a pillow or it was used for a blanket at night. And if you're by yourself, it doesn't take long for your own body heat to radiate out and for you to start getting chilly. But if you have another person to snuggle up with, then you are basically sharing that body heat. And he's saying uh, it's better for two to lie down. In other words, it's better for marriage. It's better to have that companionship in marriage. But then he says, what happens if you go into a, a rough area? If one can overpower him who is alone, two can resist him. In other words, it's always best to go out in two or more. Uh, when we went to Brazil, you know, we could, very few of us could speak hardly any Portuguese, and you know, a lot of the people in Brazil could speak just a tad of English, but not much. So if you got out by yourself and you ran into the wrong crowd, bad things could happen. So they always told us, never, ever, ever go out by yourself. Always have two or more, preferably, to go out with you. In other words, one person by themselves is very attractive to do something evil to, to rob, to, to beat up. But if there's two or more, then the odds are you know, more in the, the group's favor. <clears throat> and 
most mugger, <coughs> excuse me, most muggers would think twice about trying to attack two or more people. So he says even that is a, <coughs> is a grievous task. So we look and we see this is a reference to God using others, companionship, for the betterment of the person. <coughs> then he adds to the end of that verse, verse 12, that a cord of three strands is not quickly torn apart or easily broken, whichever way your translation says. Now, who's the third? Well, is it just a third person? Well, the Bible really does not say. A lot of people say, this is a reference to God. Now, even though the scripture does not say that, I think it's a very wise thing to see that God is the perfect third person. Really, he's the first person. So if we have God, number one, we're never alone. But if we have the companionship, which adds to our own well-being, and we have God in us and with us, then basically we have a good, solid foundation. And so a cord of three strands is not quickly torn apart. So I think God is the binding agent to keep us together. Now he shifts his gears a little bit. He goes over into the political realm. Verses 13 through 16. A poor yet wise lad is better than an old and foolish king who no longer knows how to receive instruction. For he has come out of prison to become king, even though he was born poor in his kingdom. I have seen all the living under the sun thrown to the side of the second lad who replaces him. Let me just stop there. Now, what's happening here? Well, first of all, many people in those days became king because of who they were. They were either the son of the previous king, or they had the, the power, the wealth, and the clout to say, I think I should be king. And people would just flock to them because they have this tremendous leadership over others because of their position in society. But he's describing a king who's a fool, who basically has no intellect, no recourse of knowing how to lead a nation. And so the people very quickly realize that he's not the ruler that they need. And so they start looking elsewhere. And here's a young man. He's been in prison. We don't know why he's been in prison. He may have been in prison because he... Uh, had a debt he could not owe because they had debtor's prison during that time. But he's described as a poor person. Uh, for uh, poor yet wise lad is better than this old and foolish king. So he comes out of prison and they choose him to be king. Why? Well, he doesn't have the wealth. He doesn't have the status. He doesn't have the position. And I think people saw that doesn't make a good king. This young man has wisdom. Isn't that what we need? A man who's wise enough to lead us as king. And so they throng around him and they say, this is who we want to be our king. And so verse 15 says, And I have seen all the living under the sun throng to the side of the second lad who replaced him. In other words, man's desire wants this man who shows a little bit of wisdom, even though he doesn't have the power, the wealth, and the clout. And they just disposed of the rich man who was foolish, who had been their king. But that doesn't mean this young man's going to stay king very long. Look at what verse 16 says. There's no end to all the people, to all who were before them, and even the ones who came later, who will not be happy with him. For this too is vanity and striving after wind. 
I really don't know how many presidents have been in my lifetime. But you know, as soon as they're elected, there's all this hoopra. We've got a new president. We've got somebody that's going to lead us. We got tired of the old president. We didn't like what he was doing. And so now we've got a new president. And we're putting all our hopes in them. Four years later, guess what? We got a new present. We didn't like the old one. This is what Solomon's talking about. We will always find fault with our leadership. We'll always say, we can find something better, someone better. And so the rich, powerful, wealthy, status-filled man that doesn't have the best wisdom had become king. They probably hooped and hollered when he became king. Then they realized, it's not quite what we need. He's not wise enough to lead us like we want. Then, so they go to the opposite extremes. They find a poor man, just got out of prison, but yet he shows some wisdom. Well, that's what our last king was missing, was wisdom. So we'll give him a chance. Then they say, you know, it's just going to be a vicious cycle. They're going to get tired of him, and they'll try to find someone else that they think will lead them better. That, if we live under the sun, that's what we will always be doing, is judging others by the person before them and who we want to have after them. Uh, you know, pastors of churches deal with that as well. You, know, you, you have a pastor that, well, he stayed a little too long, we don't like him anymore. You bring somebody in, he, everybody's all excited. After a few more years, well, he's kind of getting old and you know, we don't like him anymore, let's find somebody new. Well... It happens. But we look and we see there's no end to the people who will come after and before, and this will just be a vicious cycle. That there's always somebody in our, in our minds that would do better than what we have now. And that's, unfortunately, that bleeds over into so many areas of life. Way, unfortunately, that bleeds over into marriage. People get married thinking, well, this is the person I want to live with now until I find someone that I like better. And then I'll divorce this one and, and move on to the next one. And then they get tired of that one. Then they divorce that one and move on to another one. And so we see this in life. We see it in pretty much every area of life. Uh, a company that you've done business with, you like them for a while, then somebody else comes along flashing all the, all the lights and banners, and you say, I'll give them a try. I like them for a while. And then you move on to another. And that's really the, uh, the vicious cycle of life lived under the sun, lived under the ways of man. But we should never treat God that way. He is our king. He is our wise king. He is the only king. There are none beside him. And so he should always be seen as our king. We should always uh, lay our allegiance, our devotion to him and live in obedience. Otherwise, we're going to continue to live Foolishly. So just kind of wrapping this up, remember Solomon is showing his audience of the futility of living life under the sun, lived by man's means, man's desires, and he sees that when man lives by his own desires, he's going to oppress the poor, and then he himself will feel oppressed because he will never find joy in what he's doing. And then you see some that are just so greedy. It's not about other people, it's all about themselves. So they're really battling against themselves. How much more can I gain? Even though there's no one to leave it to, 
even though I'm not giving myself any time to enjoy it. Then we see the opposite extreme, the one who's lazy and produces nothing of worth, and he's wasting away, and he really doesn't care. And so Solomon says, you know, there's a, there's a midpoint that should be better. Work, but also rest. Find pleasure in work, find, find pleasure in rest. And that balance should lead you to a better way of life. And so he looks and sees also how life shared together is beneficial. Whether it's on the job, having someone to be accountable for, someone to encourage you, someone to help you along the way, is always advantageous. The same is true in marriage, you know, sharing uh, life together as a husband and a wife, and even uh, being together just for protection, to know that two or more are better protected than just one alone. And that third person, I believe, represents God. And we need to always know that he is always with us. He will always uh, guide us and he will always use us for his honor and glory. So the rich may find popularity in their status and success, but that popularity is always fleeting. The rich fool for a king. And just because a poor man has wisdom, that means he's going to be the top candidate for long. Sooner or later, they'll replace him too. So life without God is vanity. It is truly chasing after the wind. Let's close with a time of prayer. Dear Lord, we open our hearts again to you. And Lord, we are all guilty to an extent of living under the sun, living by our own desires. And Lord, it's so easy for us to see opportunities to gain wealth, power and prestige, and honor. But Lord, that's not what this life is all about. Lord, you have chosen and used people who had great wealth and prestige and honor for your own glory. Lord, so that's not saying that we cannot have that. But when it becomes self-centered, living under the sun, then it's always wrong. Lord, when we compete with others, when we compete with ourselves, greedy and oppressing others, Lord, it's always wrong. Lord, when we, when we work as unto you, so that you get the honor and the glory, and that what we gain is there for you to guide us to use, for us to be good stewards of, then we'll be blessed by it. So Lord, help us to know that there's always power in having companionship, especially godly companionship. Lord, help us to always focus on you and allow you to be the guiding force as to who uh, we team up with in life. And Lord, help us to realize just because somebody new comes on the scene and they seem better than the one before doesn't mean that they're going to last long because we live in a vicious cycle of one after another. So Lord, instead of looking towards man to be the answer to our problems, help us to surrender to you and know that you are the answer to all of our life's issues. Thank you, Lord, for this day, for the beauty of it, for your presence with us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.